We're going to be spending some time in Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And what we've been looking at as we've been studying this book of Hebrews is Jesus as the GOAT. And again, what does GOAT stand for? greatest of all time. And so we've been looking at the greatness of Jesus because the major theme of Hebrews is how Jesus is so much better than anything we could ever fathom or imagine and everything better than we perceive him to be. And so today we're going to be looking at the topic of Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. That's a pretty intense topic. Um, we can ask the question sort of, what's up with the language of sacrifice in Christianity? I mean, you read through the Old Testament, and you're talking about animal sacrifice, and does anyone find a little bit weird and odd at times, the language of sacrifice? It's, it's sort of distinct. It's, it's a little weird and crazy. And I remember the first time I started reading through the Old Testament, and I made it through Exodus, and I started getting to Leviticus, and how many people here, as soon as you hit Leviticus, you sort of just stop reading for the year? Anyone guilty of that? You're like, what is up with Leviticus? Like, why do all these sacrifices matter? What is going on? I thought this story was about Jesus. What is happening here? But really, Leviticus in many ways is about Jesus. But, but I think there's, there's some reasons why we struggle with this topic of sacrifice. Why when we talk about the blood of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and we look at the Old Testament stories of animal sacrifice, we're really quite distinct from it. And I think one of the, the major problems we face when talking about blood and sacrifice is, first of all, it's not something we practice. I mean, anyone sacrificed a goat lately? No. I mean, we're in a rural culture, and there's still a lot of us among us that really we don't kill our own meat. We get our meat from Superstore and Costco, and how does it come? It comes packaged in plastic and some nice styrofoam. It's all clean and pretty. We didn't have to slit a neck and have blood pour all of us, right? It's a very clean way, right? So it's something that's very disconnected from us in a very practical way. And so we're very disconnected even from the fact that the meat we eat, this animal actually had to die. And it had to be sacrificed for us to be fed and nourished. And so we're really disconnected from the reality that this life of this animal that we're taking is giving us life. And so it's something, again, disconnected there. Uh, there's also another major disconnect, and it has no major part of our cultural custom. In, in Canada, in the Western world, uh, we really have no concept of animal sacrifice. Now, it's quite fascinating to, to realize this because in, in human history, is human, or I was going to say, is human sacrifice a norm? I'm like, oh, no. But is animal sacrifice a norm in human history? It actually is. Guess who the odd people are in human history? We are. And it's interesting to ask the historical question, well, why is animal sacrifice not really practiced, especially for religious reasons in the Western world? Now, the Western world, we're talking about sort of Europe, the Oceania, especially North America. And these are parts of the world that have been heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman world. In other words, the Greek-Roman world of the 3rd and 4th centuries. Now, what's fascinating to me is when we look at history, one of the, the first places we see in history where animal sacrifice ceased is 4th century Rome. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, what happened around 4th century Rome that do you believe would have shifted that mentality? Anyone know their history here? Do you guys know who Constantine is? Constantine, right? And so the early church was heavily persecuted in the Roman world. It was illegal to be a Christian. And then Constantine became a Christian emperor. And actually what he ended up doing was getting away with every Roman pagan ritual, especially sacrifice. And so what we see in the Roman world in the fourth century is that animal sacrifice actually ceases. And it actually became so prominent that the emperor after Constantine, Theodosius, actually made animal sacrifices illegal in the entire Roman Empire. Now, why is that fascinating? It's because I've talked to a lot of my non-Christian friends about this and the strange interaction with sacrifice. And the conversation usually goes like this. Well, why do you think we don't practice sacrifice as Westerners anymore? And the thought is, well, we became so secular that we realized, oh, there's a bunch of random gods or deities that need to be appeased. We don't believe that anymore, so we don't practice sacrifice. When the reality of the answer to that question is actually it's because the Western world became Christianized. And they realized that there was no need for sacrifice anymore because of why? Jesus, right? Because we believe that Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins. And so there's all these historical reasons. Now, here's a third reason why we have a problem. We have some barriers when we talk about blood and sacrifice. Well, a lot of the times when we think about blood and sacrifice and we have this conversation of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus as a sacrifice, a lot of the times it's not always from a biblical perspective. Because again, going back to the Greco-Roman world, what they believed about sacrifice was much different than the Christian worldview. Because when they sacrificed something to the deities, what was their perspective? They believed that these deities, these gods, were angered at humans, and humans had to sacrifice to appease these gods. And that was the mentality. And we can twist that thought and almost make it Christian where even when we talk about blood and sacrifice, we can turn it into the story that God is mad at us from a Roman perspective. Therefore, we need these sacrifices to appease his anger. And therefore, this is what takes place, the crucifixion of Jesus. But that's a much more of a Greco-Roman thought than it is a biblical thought. And, And Tim Keller has a really good clarification on this. And he says this in regards to this, not always from a biblical perspective on sacrifice. And he says, the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human, Jesus, and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. Why did Jesus have to die in order to forgive us? There was a debt to be paid, but God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be born, but God himself bore it. Amen, church? 
That is good news. We're, we're going to talk a lot more about that in a few minutes, but uh, I want to just begin with this clarification that we have all these barriers talking about sacrifice, but why do we even emphasize it? Why is it important for us to talk about in the church? Why does Hebrews 9 bring this up? And a major part of it is because the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross, we as Christians talk about that a lot, it sets Christianity apart from other religions and worldviews completely. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, this last Tuesday, Rebecca and I had um, the joy, in some sense, of going to Commonwealth Stadium with the Pope. Did anyone hear of that event? We were able to get tickets. I wanted six. I wanted to take Andrew and Lee for that experience, but we were only able to get two. And we were behind the stage, so we had to go somewhere else, and we snuck somewhere else, but we made it. But what was interesting about this day, now obviously it's a Catholic Mass, so there's a lot of liturgies and traditions that are distinct from ours. But we sat way up in the top because we wanted to see some of the stage, and so we were far in the nosebleeds right on the top rafter. And as the mass, was, the physical mass was taking place, communion we call it, um, there's this guy behind me, he's a security guard. And I knew who he was, I knew his religion because he was wearing a karah, and I grew up with a lot of Sikh friends. It's Sikh, the, Sikh is the literal translation, but I say Sikh because if I say I was talking to a Sikh person, you're just going to think someone who's ill, right? So I saw the Quran in his hand, I was like, oh, let's engage this conversation. So I looked back to him, I said, do you have any idea what's going on right now? And he's like, no, I have no idea what's going on. And so I began to explain to him a little bit of the differences between like Protestant and Catholic understanding of communion, what we're doing and celebrating Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf so that we can be saved and, and be restored in our relationship with God. And then I, I framed the question to him. I was like, well, I know you're Sikh because I see your Quran in your hand. And I grew up with a lot of Sikh friends, and so I know a lot about Guru Granth and Guru Nanak, the founder. And I said, so how do you define, as a, as a Sikh, how do you define what is the purpose and meaning of life? So I was like, oh, that's a hard question. And then he began to say, well, part of how I define is we as Sikhs, like, we're very generous people. And they are. I mean, they have a temple system where anyone at any time can go get a meal. Like, it's incredible what they have set up. They're very generous people. He said, also to be good and loving to people. And so we, we try to be generous. We try to be loving. We try to take care of people. Like, that's the purpose and meaning in life. And I said, but don't you fail in that? He's like, yeah, we fail in that all the time. So I said, what do you do about that then? Because we're never as generous as we should be. We're never as loving as we should be. We're never as gracious or merciful or caring as we should be. We're always making mistakes. And if we believe in a God who is perfect, a God who is holy, then how does that all fit into the equation about how we relate to God? He's like, I don't really know. And I said, well, this is why we as Christians believe in Jesus, and this is why we celebrate communion and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, because we realize that we as humans are never perfect enough. We can never do enough. And so we don't believe that we can somehow appease the God. We don't believe that we can somehow do enough good works 
or be generous enough or be loving enough for God to accept us into his holy presence. So I said, this is why we celebrate Jesus. And this is really a differentiation of Christianity and every other worldview and religion out there. Is every other religion says, you need to do, you need to work, you need to act, and then you can make God happy. Where Christianity says we are hopeless apart from Christ and our righteousness, being right with one another, being right with God can only come from him. And so that's why when we talk about sacrifice this morning, that's why it's incredibly important because this is literally what distinguishes us from other religions. And this is really why we call Christianity good news. It's good news because of what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And so uh, I want us to walk through Hebrews 9. And and it's a big passage this morning. It's It's a lot to digest. And again, we as Western readers reading a, a primary Jewish letter, there's going to be a lot of imagery that we're not going to understand at first. Uh, I'm hopefully going to explain some of it. I can't explain all of it, but I'm going to explain primarily focusing on why Jesus is the greatest sacrifice and, and why we need Jesus to die for our sins. And so Hebrews 9 verse 1, and this is from the, the book of the Bible written to the Hebrews. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, and where the lampstand and where the table and the uh, the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And here's the key verse I want us to focus on. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. (laughs) But but what is he describing here? What's the description going on? The, The tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, ultimately leading to the temple. And this was the place where where Jews believed that the holy presence of God resided. And there was these symbolic stages representing the barrier between humans and God. The barrier between a holy God and sinful humans. And so he's describing this tabernacle. Then The next section he says, These preparations having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Now, again, what was the, the function of the priests? They were, starts with an M. They were mediators, right? And who is our, the great high priest? Jesus. The great high priest is Jesus who mediates between humans and God and restores that relationship. So these priests function as mediators between God and humanity. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he goes once a year. Does anyone know that day was called? The Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the, the time of reformation. And basically what he's saying there is these are rituals that had to take place over and over and over again because they never fully atoned for the, the sins of the people. So the conscience of guilt is still there. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest, in other words, when Christ came to mediate humans to God, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, this is key here, once for all. Hear that? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of what? His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For with the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer cow, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now here's the transition statement. And here's a summary, verse 15. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new partnership between God and humans, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Same today, right? Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood of both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, this is key, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? There is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In other words, there was the temple and the tabernacle, these physical places on earth that sacrifice would take place, but what ultimately mattered was that the presence of God in the cosmos was restored. And it says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, then he would after suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? That was a lot to process, wasn't it? My goodness. There's a lot, lot, lot to process, and there's, there's so much detail. And again, for us as Western readers reading a Jewish book, it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, a, co- a cross-cultural exploration here. But what I want to do for the purposes of our time together is really just to hit on three major points from this text. And, and talk about why Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. And the main things I want to bring up is that Jesus is the greatest sacrifice first and foremost because he offered forgiveness from sins once and for all. Amen? That's good news. Not only that, he effectually purges the conscience of guilt. And third, he cleanses us from sin and makes his presence available to us. And so let's work through some of these together. When we think about Jesus offering sacrifice, why do we need forgiveness? Because each and every one of us make mistakes. We, We all make mistakes. This goes back to the conversation I had with the Sikh security guard, is that each and every one of us aren't who we should truly be. We make decisions that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others and break down and tear a relationship. And and we all long for this world to be a good place, don't we? We all long for, for justice. We all long for people to live in peace with love. But there's a problem. For some reason, we call this Christians as sin. We as humans still wreak havoc and destruction instead. This is the reason that we live in a world of evil, because of humanity. And and this plays itself on multiple levels. Um, When when you exercise violence against someone, or when you steal from someone else, you're not just performing an injustice against them, but there's also another result. You are producing a culture now of fear. You're, You're producing a culture of insecurity And therefore, you have sin permeating so much culture and society that's spreading. This is why when they would drain the bloods of the calves and goats, they let it pour out because it symbolized sin would spread and tear down and destroy everything around it. And so the question is, well, if we as humans produce evil and injustice, how is a good and perfect holy God supposed to deal with that? What's the easy way out? Well, forgiveness is the hard way out. What's the easy way out? Just to wipe everyone out, right? God created us. We created this mess. The easy way out for God which is, would just be to say, I'm done with it. There's all this evil injustice in the world. There's evil injustice in each and every one of us. The easy way to solve that problem is I'm done with humanity. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only one begotten son. Because God loved the world, 
He saw the route of forgiveness as the way forward. And so, again, if we have all contributed and we keep doing sin, this sort of puts God in a bind. If he's going to get rid of evil, he has to get rid of us. And yet the way we see God deal with that is through this tradition and this history of sacrifice. And so through the early parts of the Bible, we began to read this story of sacrifice. And for the Israelites going through it, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. And again, remember that because I'm a contributor to evil, I should be removed. And yet God said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to set up an animal to be sacrificed on your behalf. So which we have this animal symbolically dying in our place. And the biblical word for this is atonement. Who has heard of atonement before? Atonement's a very key biblical word, which means to cover over someone's debt or cover over someone's sin. And so what we would see then is, is this uncleanliness because of sin's destruction that has to be dealt with, and the animal sacrifice would be a covering over the debt of evil and injustice of humanity. However, the animal death was, was not just a symbol and a reminder of sin's tragic consequence, it was this substitute. It was the substitute because it realized that God loves his creation and didn't want to destroy his creation and doesn't want to kill humanity. And so this animal life would symbolically offer as a ransom payment that would cover over them. And the Bible calls this the process of purification, of, of cleansing, of being made right. And, and here's what's, what's wild is, is what would happen, though, throughout the story of the Old Testament, this is part of the reasons why our Bible is so long, is because humans would make these sacrifices, but as soon as they made these sacrifices, what patterns would they fall back into right away? The same patterns. Same patterns of evil and injustice and violence. And so the prophets of the Old Testament said, humanity is never going to solve this problem on its own. And this is where we see Jesus come into the story because the prophets look forward to a day where a king in the line of David would come. And he would be a servant, not just to serve, but to suffer and die for the evil committed by humanity. And his life would be a sacrifice. A sacrifice, an atonement. And this is the promise that Jesus fulfilled, amen? So he comes as king of Israel and he suffers and he dies on the cross. We see that Jesus' death becomes this atoning sacrifice that covers the debt that we as humans owe to God. And we, we have all this contribution to evil that is negated by Christ in a sacrifice for us. And so we see the sacrifice of Christ coming to bring ultimate restorative forgiveness. And so what's another way that this happens? Now, here's, here's the next stage. Then. If Christ forgives us, and if Christ becomes this once-for-all atonement over all our sin, over all our injustice, over all our evil when we confess it to him, he also does something beautifully. He purges the conscience of our guilt. Anyone here struggle with guilt and shame? Almost daily, almost weekly, perhaps monthly, we have this stage of conscious of 
guilt, of shame. Why? Because we repeat the pattern of sin over and over again. And here's the beautiful thing that Jesus does. He doesn't just forgive us. He also begins to restore our own relationship to ourselves with our guilt. And the problem we see in the Old Testament, even the pagan sacrifices of history, is that they were never complete, right? And Andrew talked about this a little bit in in chapter 7, that the priest would have to go over and over and over and over again to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And not only that, but there wasn't an eternal priest, which means that once one priest died, another priest would have to take his place, and it was this cycle and cycle and cycle. And so what you began to do as a, a person in wanting to restore relationship with God is realizing that none of this actually works. None of this system actually accomplishes anything. Because as soon as we make sacrifice, I go and sin, I go and mess up again, and this becomes meaningless now. It hasn't accomplished anything. And so the, the, the beautiful thing here is that the, the pagan sacrifices of history and even the Old Testament sacrifices were never complete. Therefore, your guilt and your shame could never be fully dealt with because you never knew if you were right with God. And yet the beautiful thing that the Scripture says is that the Holy Spirit actually shows us into the most holy place. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. And he says, the Holy Spirit shows us into the most holy place, the way into the very presence of God. And so the Holy Spirit shows us by means of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can enter into the holy presence of God blameless, clean, purified. We don't have to live burdened by the conscience of every sin. We don't have to live burdened by the weight of guilt in our life. We can be completely restored. And so all these ceremonies and regulations and arrangements that had to be done to enter into the presence of God and the tabernacle and the temple, it basically says none of that worked. But the beautiful thing is, is that what Christ has accomplished on the cross completely removes the conscience of guilt. And so Jesus didn't die just to completely cover our sin in forgiveness. He also did away with it forever. He canceled it. He canceled it. And the the most beautiful way that I think Scripture really defines this actually comes from 1 John 1.9. And it's just a few books later from Hebrews. But it's this beautiful passage in 1 John 1.9 that reminds of this. It says, if we confess our what? Does anyone know? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. In other words, he has accomplished this. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? This is what what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And we're reminded that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. What does that mean? It means that not only God has been faithful in in forgiving us of our sins, not only been faithful of removing our conscience of guilt, but it would be unjust of God to remove that from us. Isn't that crazy? That because God is faithful and just, he did away with our sin forever. 
So now it would be unjust of God to punish for our sins because God would be requiring two payments for the same sin and Jesus died once for all. What does that mean? That means when you're walking around in life and when the lies and burdens of guilt and shame begin to overbear you, and you begin to look at yourself through a very negative lens, and you begin to have negative self-talk, and you begin to be overridden, you can come to the cross and say, Jesus, you have died for this sin. You will restore me. And God, not only have you been faithful in forgiving me to removing this consciousness of guilt, but it would be unjust of you to hold this sin against me because of what Jesus has done. Do you see how powerful that is? You see how life transformative that is? It's absolutely a game changer. And the point is that God has forgiven you. God has displayed his love in such a powerful way that all the accusing voices of the conscience of our guilt, whether from the devil or from what others say about us or even from our negative self-talk, all those things can now be silenced in our life. When we go to the cross, when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, finding peace through the blood of Jesus. Now, what's this third aspect that he does in Hebrews chapter 9? He cleanses us from sin and makes his presence available. This is fascinating. So sacrifice is a way that God cleanses us. God cleanses us. Now, this is often the opposite way that we begin to think about this. Because how we often think about the, the sacrifice of Jesus as, as, as something that we do before God, and, and this is how the pagan traditions and this is how even some historical traditions have practiced sacrifice, is this whole concept that God can't stand to be around us in our sinful state. And therefore we need to clean ourselves up, get our lives together, make ourselves presentable before God, and then we can be in his presence. Anyone ever struggle with that thought before? Anyone heard of that thought? Where we feel like we have to do all these things to earn the favor of God and to be in the presence of God. And in reality, it's the complete opposite. Where God actually cleanses us. So again, we tend to think of sacrifice as this way that we clean ourselves up. And sure, we look at it through the sacrifices of the animals throughout the Old Testament, but we do it in many practical ways today. Uh, we clean ourselves up, so we might go into our prayers of confession, we might do some good works, we, we might think that even attendance on a Sunday morning will sort of earn favor with God. We, we do all these ritualistic things thinking that we'll earn favor from God and nothing, none of it really matters. Why? Because God has set us apart with his cleansing. And in Scripture, it actually works in the opposite direction. It's not something that we use to clean ourselves up. But rather, it's that God cleanses us so that we can be with God. And here's maybe a picture, a word picture that might frame this in our minds. When we think about the sun in our solar system, you could say that the sun is so bright and powerful and glorious that it could be used in a similar sense of the word holy. It is set apart. Why? Because as soon as you get too close to the sun, what happens to you? You're going to burn up and die, right? I mean, we literally as humans cannot be in the presence of that powerful sun. It's unique in our solar system. Now, another thing that's fascinating about the sun is does the sun 
need us to exist? No. But do we need the sun to exist? 100% we do. We would either dry up completely or we would freeze to death, right? And so we very much need the sun to survive. We need it for food to be able to flourish, all these things, right? And, and it's good, again, for the sun to be there, but if our planet gets too close to the sun or too far away, what happens? We're done, right? We die. Now, now here's the wild connection. So there's a sense that you could look at the sun as holy, set apart in our system. In the same way, God is very similar to that, isn't he? When we think about it. Because as a creator of the cosmos, he's unique, he's distinct from his creation, he's set apart. Does God need us to exist? No. Do we need God to exist? 100%. And so God is also described in the Bible as a light, a glorious light, a powerful light. And like in his eternal essence, like in his eternal being, that there's nothing that we could do to stop his radiance from spreading. And he gives life to this world and he gives us flourishing because of what he has accomplished. But again, the distinction is, if we get too close to the sun, we die. However, the opposite in our relationship with God is that we were actually made to live in the presence of this powerful, glorious, holy being. Isn't that wild to think about? But again, the problem that we face is, is what is it that keeps us from his presence? Sin. So the picture here is not where we mess up in our sin and God is almost afraid of the evil and injustice and so God is hiding out in the solar system somewhere waiting for humans to clean up their mess. Does that happen? What does God do on the other half when he, when he sees the evil and injustice and he sees humanity crumbling and falling apart? What does God do in history? He enters into that world. Isn't that crazy? And what blows my mind is the same word that is used of the tabernacle, which is the first 10 verses here emphasized in Hebrews 9. What is the same word that Jesus uses when he, it says in the Scripture, he says he came to dwell with us. And the literal translation of dwell is actually tabernacle. And so Jesus actually came to tabernacle with us. In other words, Jesus brought his presence to us. Now, had humanity cleaned themselves up and became perfect by then? No, yet Jesus enters into that hardship and pain and injustice and actually came to restore that corrupted condition. And so there's this sense that in our corrupted condition and in our sinful condition, if you get too close, we cannot be in the glorious presence of God. But the beautiful thing is that God cleanses us so that we can be in his presence. In other words, this is all God's doing. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we could accomplish on our own. And so when we talk about Jesus and his sacrifice, it's not so that we can clean ourselves up so that God can be around us. It's the opposite. 
God uses the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood shed for us, to cleanse us, to atone us, to make us whole, and to restore us so that we can be in his presence again. And so the cross is really this sacrifice that cleanses us to be in the presence of God. And so these, these are all the things that Hebrew 9 is celebrating. It's celebrating that, that we have a God who comes to us and forgives us. We have a God who, who doesn't want us to be overwhelmed and burdened by the guilt of our sin, but restores us. We, we have a God who so longs to be with us and enjoy his presence with us that instead of telling us to clean up ourselves and get our act together, he actually enters into the injustice and evil and takes it all upon himself in the sacrifice of the cross to restore and to cleanse, to make his holy presence available for us. That's good news, is it not, church? And so I, I don't know where you're at today as individuals, but I, I think as, as complex as, as Hebrews 9 is and, and how much inside of the Old Testament language is there, I, I think the, the three beautiful thoughts that come from Jesus as the greatest are, are simply the reality that Jesus forgives, that Jesus deals with our guilt, that Jesus cleanses us so that we can enjoy the beautiful presence of God. And, and when we think about a, a world of an injustice and evil, when we think about a world that we long to be made right, when we think about our own lives of injustice and evil, and our own lives that we long to be made right, our only hope is to come to know Jesus' sacrifice because that is what will transform that is what will change us. That is what will give us the perspective that we need to function as fully human as the people of God. And so let's pray to that extent as the team comes up. Gracious God, we come before you. And Lord, so often in our culture, this, this language of sacrifice is so foreign to us. We, we don't fully understand all the implications at time. And yet what we see in history is that you are a God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Or we read in, in verse 22 that tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Why? Because we need the evil and injustice of this world to be dealt with. We need the evil and injustice and sin of our lives to be dealt with. And Lord, we cannot do that on our own. We can't do it by good works. We can't do it by good, trying to be good people. Lord, we fail over and over and over again. And yet, that we thank you that you have offered us a forgiveness once for all that our sins can be dealt with through the atoning work of Jesus. And that because of your forgiveness, we don't have to walk through this life being burdened by guilt, knowing that you are a God who restores us and transforms us into the people you desire us to be. And Lord, we also realize that we, as humans, as creatures, we are created to live in the presence of our Creator. And Lord, we thank you for the blessing that in the sacrifice of Christ, that is once again made possible. 
And so, Lord, we even sit here and now enjoying your presence. And so, Lord, I pray for those of you in this room who who don't fully know Jesus and know who Jesus is. And Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to each and every one of us, especially those who are, are seeking to know what it means to be in a relationship with you, Jesus. And, and I pray that even all the complexities of language in this passage, Lord, that you would just break through those things and show them who you are. Show them the beauty of who you are. Show them why we celebrate you so dearly and desperately as a church because you are only hope for salvation. Your sacrifices are only hope to be made right, to be made restored to you and restored to each other. We thank you, our gracious God, for this gift of sacrifice that we celebrate. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.